10 to Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When God saw that, saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, pray with me, please. Gracious God, we thank you for this day that you have made. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to find your word for us and give us the spirit of obedience. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. So last week, we heard the uh, story about the prophet Elijah as he began to challenge uh, the worship of the Canaanite god Baal in northern Israel. Uh, that's what prophets do. Prophets critique, they condemn um, the lack of faithfulness to the one true God. And they exhort both the leaders and the people of the land to return, to turn back to the soul worship of the one true God. The prophet Jonah, however, uh, has a different, a unique kind of mission. Rather than preaching in and to the people of Israel, he is sent to preach against the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and at that time, the greatest power in the world and the greatest threat to the kingdoms of Israel. And so they are the enemies of Jonah and his people, and so he wants to have nothing to do with this. 
And so he gets on a ship to go as far away from Nineveh in the opposite direction, a ship headed for Tarshish, uh, a, a place like Timbuktu for us, just to, to get away as far away as possible. But God wants Jonah to complete his mission, and so he redirects the ship by hurling a great wind and a mighty tempest, which threatens to destroy the ship. The sailors stroll against this unusual storm until Jonah confesses that it is his fault why this is happening, and upon his insistence, they toss him over the sea, into the sea. The storm stops, the sailors are saved, and this great spiritual revival breaks out aboard that vessel. And then you all know what happens next. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Everyone knows about Jonah and the whale. And Jonah spends those three days in the belly of the fish, in the great fish, until uh, the fish vomits him out onto dry land. And this is usually where we kind of end this story with children, right? This is, this is how the story ends. Uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish. He prayed. Uh, Presumably he was forgiven, and the fish uh, tossed him back out onto land. But that's only half the story. God gives Jonah a second chance, and despite what he has just experienced, he only reluctantly, grudgingly, heads to Nineveh. And he preaches a five-word perfunctory sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. It's not the kind of sermon they teach in seminary. As one scholar has described it, Jonah's speech is marked by remarkable brevity and a decided lack of rhetorical creativity. Jonah passed up this incredible opportunity to share what I think any one of us would want as a testimony, right? Can you imagine? If this were any other preacher or prophet, he would have started with his testimony. He would have said something to the effect, you know, I try to run away from God when God had this message for me to deliver. But God then sent a storm. God tried to destroy this ship. I got tossed overboard. This fish swallowed me up. I was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights praying for my life. And that's why I come to you now, my skin all blotchy and bleachy from the stomach acids with seaweed in my hair and smelling like shellfish. And thus saith the Lord, yet 40 days, right? That's the way to do the sermon. But he doesn't. Instead, it's about as brief as you can make it. 40 days, Nineveh shall be overturned. And yet, those five words leads to one of the greatest revivals in all of Scripture. The entire city repents and they throw themselves upon the mercy of God. And comically, the king orders that even the animals, the dogs and the cats, go around wearing sackcloth as a sign of their repentance. And as a result, as you just heard in the reading, when God, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think any other preacher would be pretty happy with these results. A five-word sermon leading to an outbreak of 
a great and incredible spiritual revival. Everyone except for Jonah. He gets exceedingly, extremely, greatly angry with God. And in his prayers to God, he complains that God has been too merciful. And when God tries to engage him in conversation about that, like a toddler having a fit, he sulks and he walks out on God as if he could get away. He hasn't learned the lesson of not being able to escape. In my family, we would have said he was molding. So Jonah goes out of the city. He makes a temporary shelter, sits down to see what will happen to the city. He's probably reminding God about what God to Sodom and Gomorrah. God, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? You can do that once more. The 10 plagues of Egypt, do that again. Or at least send fire down like you did with Elijah. He can then go back home and be this great prophet who brought upon the destruction of his enemies and the enemies of his people. But God is in their plans. Just as God had earlier appointed a great fish, so now God appoints a plant to give him shade. The booth that he had constructed apparently was not very good. He's a prophet, not a carpenter. And so Jonah is really, really enjoying that shade. I mean, really enjoying it. But then the next day, God appoints a worm to attack that plant. The plant withers and then appoints a scorching east wind to add to the already scorching heat of the sun. And it was so hot, Jonah is about to faint, and he thinks that dying would be better and asks God to take his life. In his anger, the last word that Jonah speaks is death. But the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and, shouldn't, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's an amazing exchange. Jonah is super, super angry. He's got what we might think of as first world problems. He's super angry because the electricity has gone out on his air conditioning on a very hot day, but he could care less about the 120,000 people, possibly all children, that they might die. And so to point out the absurdity of Jonah's misplaced anger, God says, okay, if you don't care about these people, then maybe do you at least care about the cows? Shouldn't I take pity on all these people? It's a question that Jonah never answers, but one which I think today we are invited to answer for ourselves. Now, probably only a handful of you might remember this. I can remember when I was a kid, in my parents' car was there was this thing called an eight-track tape player, anybody? <laughs> now I know some of our young folks, I know it's hard to imagine, but there was a time when the only music that you could bring into the car were these eight track tapes. They were like, I don't know, nearly as big as this. It was plastic, it was bulky, and so because they were kind of big, you could only have, you know, 
five, six, uh, half a dozen of these tapes uh, in the car. And each of these bricks could only store like 10 songs. That's what car rides were like. So, so imagine you're in the car with your parents and your siblings and you're going for like these long, like, you're driving from Buffalo to Florida and you have five of these. And so you can imagine, so we listen to the same songs over and over and over and over and, and, and all five tapes that we had in the car were Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. <laughs> and so you know, we had one that everyone has, The Sound of Music, of course, right? So we, we remember, I mean, we knew every, every word. My, my sister's like, we could do the entire, uh, the whole thing, word for word. Um, but the tape that we probably listened to the second most often uh, was South Pacific. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Anyway, uh, in that musical, there's this song called You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. Um, not going to sing it. Let me just read you the words, the lyrics. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed into your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you're six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. Still true, isn't it? We, whether we admit it or not, we're greatly shaped by our environments. We're all taught from childhood what and whom to fear and to hate explicitly and otherwise. Even though our family, our friends, our neighbors, our churches might say, you know, we're against any form of bigotry and racism, we still internalize these hates and these fears. We are taught who to hate by the people that we surround ourselves with and by the people we avoid by the kinds of entertainment and news that we absorb and consume, by the kinds of uh, conversations that we allow ourselves to have within certain groups of people. Jonah was no different. He grew up carefully taught that the Ninevites were an existential threat to him and his people. And so naturally, he wants God to punish them not forgive them. And we're no different from Jonah. We're no different. Um, a, a friend of mine decades ago uh, shared a little joke with me about Jonah's name in Korean. Um, the word, the name Jonah in Korean, and you know I'm going to butcher this, um, sounds a little bit like Jona, right? Jo meaning him or that one, and na meaning me. So Jonah Jonah, like, he's me. Jonah is me. Okay? <laughs> Just making sure I got that right. All right? So, to be frank, there are a lot of people you don't like. Right? There are a lot of people you don't like. Now, there are 
acceptable groups of people, I suppose, that we can all agree are not likable and it's okay to hate them, right? Probably um, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban, maybe the Russians right now, who knows? But depending on the groups of people, the, the tribes and the families that you're with, there are other groups of people, there are other peoples that it's okay for you to hate. And depending on the circles that you're with, maybe it's okay for you to hate the Japanese or the mainland Chinese. Maybe Trump supporters or Biden supporters. Others of you, there are people that you talk about that annoy you at work. People who drive too fast or too slow. People who don't clean up or people who are too fastidious. And of course, those fans of that team that always happens to be your favorite team. We're so convinced that they're wrong, whatever that they group may be, that whatever harm comes to them because of the harm that they've done to me, it's deserving. It's God's justice. And this is why Jonah makes no effort to tell the Ninevites the whole truth about who God is. He knows. In fact, this is why he says, I don't want to do this. He says, God, I know that you are a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. Like, I know what you're like, but I'm not going to tell them. I'm only going to tell them 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. And yet amazingly, even with an angry prophet shading the God, God's truth, God is still able to speak to the Ninevites and save their lives because God's nature is to relent from bringing disaster. Uh, some of you know I grew up in the uh, old King James Version of the Bible and chapter 3, verse 10 reads, And God saw their works, they, they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. God repented of the evil. Uh, whereas we hear uh, God relented of the disaster. right? Because it sounds wrong to say God repented of some evil. Uh, as if God had done some uh, moral wrong. Like, that doesn't seem like what God could possibly do. And so the ESV and other modern translations, uh, they've, they've changed it to make it more understandable uh, to say that God relented of the disaster or that even God changed his mind of the calamity that he would bring uh, upon the people. And, and that, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, and so, because for us, when we talk about when I repent or when I relent or when I change my mind uh, from evil, it's because I've done something that is morally unacceptable, right? Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I lied. And so for me to repent is to no longer lie but tell the truth. But that's not what it means for God to repent or relent or to change God's mind. For God to repent or relent or change his mind is not to turn away from some moral evil which God cannot commit, but rather to turn away from the disasters 
which in his justice he rightfully threatened the people with. For God, this repentance or relentance, God is a turning away from enforcing justice to embracing mercy. It's a turn from enforcing justice, which God has every right to do, and instead to embracing mercy. And so this is, uh, I'm making up a word here, obviously. Um, I haven't done this in a while, but I'm calling this God's relentance. It's the relentance of God. And this is actually God's plan of redemption to turn from justice and judgment that is deserved to grace and mercy. As God says in Jeremiah 18, and if that nation, any nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do to it. Or as James 2 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's precisely this relentance of God that Jonah does not want for his enemies. What Jonah has to learn and what we have to learn is that the God we serve does not desire punishment upon our enemies. God does not desire death, but rather forgiveness and life for all of God's creation. Our enemies are not God's enemies. Our desire for death is opposed by God's desire for life. In fact, one of the, the many ironies in the story of Jonah is that Jonah thought he preached God's message of destruction, but he didn't. The words that he used was that Nineveh would be overturned. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. There is an overturning, but it's a transformation. It's a repentance. It's an overturning into life. God fulfills Jonah's word, but not in the way that he had hoped or expected. This is God's desire. This was the promise that was given from the very beginning to uh, Abraham and to Sarah when God said that through you, through your people of Israel, and of course ultimately in their descendants of Jesus Christ, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. All the families of the earth, not just the Israelites. That's what they were supposed to do. That's what we are supposed to do as a church. Jesus said in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In 2 Peter 3, we are taught, God is patient towards you. God is patient. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the relentance of God, that all, the Ninevites and Jonah. You know, when you read this story, you're probably thinking, God could have and should have picked a better prophet. There's got to be some better prophets around, someone who is more willing to participate in the mission of God. But that's part of the point of the story. God is demonstrating his character of graciousness and patience, his persistent relentless relentance, blah, relentance toward Jonah in the same way that God is revealing himself to the Ninevites. God relents from punishing Jonah when he runs away in defiance of God's command. God relents 
when Jonah needlessly endangers an entire crew of international sailors. God relents when Jonah unreasonably gets angry and sulks. God relents when Jonah demands that his life be taken. And consider how wasteful, consider how much effort, the resources that God invests in this relentance toward Jonah. God had to hurl a storm. God had to appoint a great fish to save him, both by swallowing him and then having indigestion for three days before he could vomit. God followed that up by appointing a plant to provide shade and then further appointed a worm to attack that plant and then a scorching wind to accompany the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah. God goes out of his way to teach an undeserving, an unrepentant prophet a lesson in compassion. And God uses his, his small, this, this tiny little capacity that he has for compassion for this plant to try to work through Jonah's anger issues, to draw him out, and for him to at least consider the reasonableness of God's compassion. Because Jonah himself has declared, God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. God cares about all the families of the world. And God uses, think about this, God uses Jonah's disobedience to save that boatload of sailors. God uses Jonah's reluctant proclamation to save an entire city. But God is also at work on the soul of one man. God is as invested and is as interested in the life of Jonah as God is in the lives of the 120,000 in the city of Nineveh. God is willing to go out of his way for the sake of one, to leave the 99 behind, to go after that one sheep. Like Jonah, like you and me. And it appears that God is willing to do all of this knowing that Jonah may not be moved by it at all. Let me close with this. It seems to me that when Jesus told uh, one of his most well-known parables, the parable about the two lost sons and the prodigal father, he may have had the story of Jonah in mind. Remember that story, the parable? Jesus tells about a younger brother who uh, wants his uh, family inheritance early. He goes off to a far country, uh, wastes it all, and then when he hits rock bottom, he decides to come home uh, to beg for some food, uh, not to be taken back as a son, but to become a servant so that at least he can have something to eat. Um, you know, like the Ninevites, they're repenting, wondering, perhaps uh, we can be forgiven. And as the son is returning, the father has every right to disown him, has every right to judge him. In fact, that's what's expected, right? When a child treat you like that, you have to punish that child. Those are the standards of the community. You can't let a kid like that get away because he's going to be a bad apple for everybody else. But when the father, who's been waiting for his son to return, sees him in a distance, the father 
just throws away all his dignity and runs to that son to embrace him, to shower him with hugs, to, to clothe him, to put a ring on him and sandals. And then he throws this, this huge party to celebrate his return. That's grace. And we love this story. It's a story of mercy and grace that any sinner repentant can return and will be embraced by the love of God. We love that. But that's only half the story. That's only half the story. Because during the party, the older brother comes and he sees, he hears the music, he sees the parting, the food, and he's like, this isn't fair. And he gets super angry. He gets super angry. And he will not join the party because here's this brother who's wasted, who is deserving of punishment, and yet is being thrown a party. Right? It's exactly the way Jonah behaves. So the father comes out to where he is, outside the forgiven city, outside the party, and he reasons with them. And the father says, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's really the, the same thing that God says to Jonah. He raises the same question. They were dead. Now they're alive. Shouldn't we celebrate that? Should I not have pity? Shouldn't I be for life? And Jesus, the great teacher, he leaves the story the same way that the story of Jonah ends. We do not hear how the older brother responded to that invitation. Kenneth Bailey, who knows this parable better than anyone in the whole world, notes that in this parable that Jesus tells, the first part of that story has eight stanzas and the second part of the story only has seven. It's, he, he leaves that last stanza open for us to answer, for us to fill in. What will the brother do? And Bailey offers this hopeful conclusion to Jesus' parable. And the older son embraced his father and entered the house and was reconciled to his brother and to his father. And the father celebrated together with his two sons. We don't know what Jonah did. But can we imagine, I want to imagine, that Jonah went back into the city and he told the people the whole truth about God. Yes, God is a God of justice, one who will punish evil, but God is also a gracious God, a God of mercy, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and one who wants to relent of the disaster that he has proclaimed. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter what anyone says about you, the relentance of God will always welcome you home. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the reminder of who you are. So God, we ask that 
you would continue to soften our hearts, that we too would choose life. To those with whom we disagree, those whom we despise, help us, God, to recognize that they are, in the end, our brothers and sisters, that we are all your children for whom Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, died. So in his name, God, help us to have pity, to relent of the harm that we would wish upon them. Help us to pursue those things which lead to greater life. As you yourself taught us, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.